Welcome to the Technicast, a podcasting community open to all arts and humanities researchers. I'm Julian, and with Joe and Polly, every month we invite a researcher to introduce their own work. This month, we're joined by John Mason, who's going to talk about eco-storytelling. That is how myth and folk tales promote environmental awareness and place attachment, and John is especially interested in how that happens in urban settings as well. But John is also a storyteller, and here he is now. So, do you want to hear a story? Okay, I'll tell you a story. Once, there was a shepherd in North Wales, in a tiny village of scattered stone houses between the mountains and the shore. And he grazed his flocks in the green grass fields behind the stone walls. But the woods always hung low beyond the fields, oak and birch and bracken. And one day, a woman emerged from the woods, wild and red-haired and long-nosed, and so he knew that she must be one of the fairy folk. But nonetheless, the shepherd and the fairy woman fell in love, and he couldn't bear to be parted from her, so he begged her to stay with him on the farm and marry him. But she had to go and ask her people's permission first. So she walked back into the woods, to the side of a hill, and then doors opened up, and she walked inside. Now her people, they did give permission for the young couple to get married, but only on one condition, that she must never touch iron. Iron, the cold, hard substance of all the tools that had carved the fields out from the woods, that had split the stones to make the walls and build the houses. If she touched iron, then she would have to leave our world behind. But the sweethearts were sure that they could do something about this, and so they made sure that Every tool, every household object that she might touch was made with brass and not with iron. So they lived happily for many years. Until one day they were out riding on the beach and her horse stumbled. And as he rode up close and bent down to inspect the injury, then her bare ankle touched the iron stirrups hanging from his saddle. And the two sweethearts stared shocked into each other's faces. And the shepherd begged his wife not to go, to stay with him here. But all she could do was shake her head. And then she vanished. Hi, my name is John Mason and I am a storyteller, as well as having started my first year of a PhD 
funded by Techni at the University of Brighton. That story that I just told is from Llanrothen, the small village in North Wales where my uncle and aunt live. And I tried to frame it as an example of what Anthony Nelson calls eco-storytelling. Eco-storytelling is an effort to use oral folklore like that in order to inspire an interest in the natural environment around us and to get people to think about humanity's relationship with that environment in the present and in the past, for better or for worse. And this really speaks to me as a storyteller because one of the things I've always been most interested in is again using oral folklore and also local history to get people to look at where they live in a new way, to see a value in places that we take for granted and to encourage a sense of connectedness and belonging. Now I'm going to talk to you today about how that relates to my PhD but also some of the areas that I'd like to stretch those ideas into. And what I do as a storyteller, I think, is very much founded in the idea that those sort of stories are something that we've lost. That oral folk tradition is something that very few of us have access to these days in a, in a what you might call, I suppose, an organic way. Very few of us grow up these days hearing stories like that, that were handed down, not just within our family, but also the community in which we live over successive generations carrying long-standing traditions that don't just reflect on society or, or offer entertainment, but significantly reflect on the place, the geographical setting of the community and the community's relationship with it. Now, mechanization and commercialization obviously have a lot to do with that. And if you saw Esther Leslie's keynote address at the recent Techni Student Congress, you'll have heard her talk about Walter Benjamin's view that the growth in modern urban life detached people from a previous mode of experience which had been communicated by traditional stories. I think another factor is also the increase in mobility. Very few of us now live in the same area that our immediate ancestors might have done. And I think that eco-storytelling as a model, as a theory, and a lot of the study of folklore overall, at least in Britain and maybe other parts of Europe, is also founded on this same idea of loss. We're trying to give something back, something that we see a value in, something that we think adds something to modern life that people would benefit from, not necessarily as an alternative to newer forms of communication or entertainment, but certainly as something that it's a shame not to have anymore. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to critique that idea a bit and subvert it a bit. And in doing so, I'll explain what I'm hoping to do with my PhD. When I did my MA a few years ago in contemporary history at the University of Sussex, I became fascinated with the idea that narrative, storytelling essentially, is a human impulse that is alive and well, and we do it all the time to give structure and meaning to our lives. This has been proposed by many philosophers and psychologists and mythographers from Alastair MacIntyre to Alan Garner, but I first came to consider it when we looked at oral history theory and an article by a historian called Penny Summerfield called Culture and Composure. Summerfield argues very persuasively that when people give an account of their own lives or events that they lived through as an oral history interview, then there is an element of performance and that even if people don't know it, what they're often doing is creating a narrative with a satisfying beginning, middle and an end either to give themselves some sort of psychological comfort 
or even to make sure that what they're saying conforms to a dominant social narrative so that they don't feel any sense of dissonance or that they're not going against what felt faithful to a community or an assumed identity. Summerfield calls this process of creating and performing a story about the past composure. Later on in my MA, I found myself studying musical subcultures because I very much like that sort of thing. And I started to feel that this impulse to create a story about events in order to make sense of existence doesn't just happen when we reflect on the past. It's something we all do in the present to give structure and meaning to our own lives. For example, when I was looking at UK punk music in the 1970s, then in all the oral history accounts that you read of that time, there's all the usual subculture stuff about they're not a proper punk because they didn't wear the right clothes or didn't have the right attitude or whatever. But some of those involved, and some scholarly commentators since, have observed that to an extent there is no real strict criteria for what makes you a punk or a part of any other subculture. Instead, there's a received set of symbols and examples of behavior which most of us approach in our own individual ways and adopt the elements that matter to us in order to put on an identity according to our understanding of those symbols, an identity that we choose, and it might even make us feel like we belong to a community with shared interests and values. And this was emphasized really strongly when I came to look at folk music. So my master's dissertation was on the post-war British folk boom, and in pursuing that, I interviewed a lot of people who'd been fans or musicians in the folk scene at that time. And one of these was Roger Watson, who was just the most amazing musician. He played the melodeon, sort of accordion. Um, and he's just a storehouse of information and thought about the music that he'd played. And one of the points that he made was this. He grew up in Derbyshire in the middle of the 20th century. And he was lucky enough in many ways to go to grammar school. But there were a lot of other lads where he grew up who didn't do that. And when they finished school, they went down the pit to become miners. But when Roger and I were talking about work songs and the culture of singing about your daily life in folk music, he pointed out that those lads who'd gone down the pit, when they got out of work at the end of the day, they didn't want to sing old songs about the hard life of being a miner, which might have been what he and his fellow folkies were doing in clubs, because they'd been doing that all day. They didn't want to devote the rest of their emotional lives to singing about it. What they wanted to do was to slick back their hair and put on brothel creepers and a drape jacket and go out and be a teddy boy, because that meant that they were something different. They weren't miners at that point. They were something cooler, something more exotic, more exciting. And what they were essentially doing was putting on a costume and making up a story about themselves, which gave them a similar sort of psychological meaning and comfort to what Summerfield was talking about with her concept of composure. Which got me thinking that the people who were making up the folk scene at that time were actually telling a story themselves. In the same way, although a lot of them came from what we might call a more middle-class background, they were also trying to address questions of identity and community and direction in their lives for various reasons. And they did this by taking on the narrative that there was this thing called folk music that had this virtuous and interesting and important past. 
and they were deriving meaning for their lives by acting out a part in that story. This becomes very clear when you look back at how the idea of folk music was developed, and indeed folk tales as well. Both of these categories of culture were really defined in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And a lot of the figures who came to dominate that discourse in which these ideas took shape, people such as Cecil Sharp regarding music or W.J. Toms for folk tales, they were very concerned with that loss of community traditions, which I mentioned earlier. They saw rural culture as holding memories of an ancient and defining national past. But they saw the poorer population of their time leaving rural settings for urban centres and taking on new customs and entertainments that were produced by a new cosmopolitan and commercial urban life. And a lot of these scholars saw this as a decline and an erosion of the culture of the folk and, by their logic, of the nation as a whole. And so they set out to save it. But modern writers, a lot of modern writers such as Georgina Boys, Dave Brocken and Steve Roud have all noted that these folk revivalists in the 19th and early 20th centuries were to a large extent responding simply to their own unease at the social and environmental changes that had resulted from industrialization. They were clinging to a very romanticized idea of the past, which they were presenting as a more enlightened and virtuous model for society and culture. And they were attempting to promote this as an alternative to all the rather degrading and vulgar looking things that alarmed them about contemporary society. Steve Roud has characterized this as Merry Englandism. And in doing this, these folk revivalists both denied the majority of the population a notion of choice in what their culture was, but also they heavily mediated the depiction of folk culture that they were promoting. It was not at all uncommon for scholars to edit out the bits of stories that they thought were a bit too rude or a bit risque, or simply the material that didn't fit their picture of what they wanted the past to have been. And sometimes they invented completely new customs and traditions rather than just documenting things as they were found. And in their definition of folklore, newly acquired and especially urban practices were definitely out. So once again, I would say that in how they defined folklore, these 19th century scholars were telling a story about what folklore was and what they were doing. And this story mattered to them because it met their own emotional needs in their present. And significantly, key parts of that story were that folklore was intrinsically related to rural landscapes and the distant past, and it was being lost and replaced by something that was not folklore and which was somehow diminished or, or less than what had come before. And significantly for my PhD, I think that story is still with us now, informing our idea of what folklore is and why it should be preserved. Now, as I said at the beginning, certain sorts of oral tradition have definitely been lost. It would be daft to deny it. And if nothing else, it would be a shame not to retain that historical record. But as Summerfield and McIntyre and others have noted, that impulse to tell stories, to make sense of our lives and the world around us, was never lost. It's part of human psychology. 
J.R.R. Tolkien even argued in his essay on fairy stories that in each generation or setting, people will retain the elements of a story that still resonate with them, but drop out those that don't anymore and even replace them with new elements that matter more in their current lives. And building on Walter Benjamin, Susan Buck Morse has even argued that in entering into urban life with its vast panoply of new social situations to negotiate, new stimuli that people are exposed to, people would actually have been inspired to more storytelling as a way of structuring and navigating that new situation, just as when faced with a dangerous wilderness in the past. So it is interesting to think about what other traditions, what beliefs, what stories would have been created by people in the newer urban setting of the 19th century. Jerry Sweetley was a tosher. The toshers were people in Victorian London who made what living they could by going down into the sewers beneath the streets to sift through the filth and the water for rags and bones and occasional trinkets anything that they could sell. It was illegal and it was dangerous work because the Toshas knew that the river could flood through those tunnels and take everything away with it without warning. They also knew that down there in the tunnels they were not alone. The rats ruled that underground world and if a Tosha was not careful, then they could make any invader very unwelcome indeed. But the Toshas also knew that there was one who might give them fortune. The Queen Rat, it was said, could take the form of a human woman and she might appear to an unsuspecting Tosha lad, and if he showed her a good time, then she would give him luck and safety in all his searches. And in his family there would always be one daughter, with one brown eye, but one as grey as the river itself, who would never die by drowning. Jerry Sweetly told in old age, that he had met the Queen Rat. While he was out one night, in the music halls and the taverns of London, and he had found this strange woman, who he'd never seen before, very interested in him. But when they retired to a rag factory, then he found that she had teeth, sharp as knives, and claws to match. And he pushed her away, and he shouted out, but he found that he was no longer looking at a woman, but at a rat up on a beam by the roof. And the rat called down to him, You will have your luck, Jerry Sweetly, but you've not finished paying me for it yet. So it was that his first wife died in childbirth, and his second was crushed by a boat between the docks and the river. But Jerry Sweetly, he lived a long life, and in each generation of his family, 
They say that there was that one girl with one brown eye and one grey. The belief in the Queen Rat and Jerry Sweetley's apparently autobiographical account are one of the few bits of urban folklore that fortunately were recorded in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And one of my main concerns in my PhD is to make use of such examples in eco-storytelling. It is entirely valid that a lot of the good work already done in eco-storytelling focuses on rural landscapes, the, the green, growing, wilder parts of the world around us, and on the past as well, in order to ask questions about modern society and how we affect the land and about the future. But I think if we stay solely within the restrictions of that founding narrative of folklore studies, where folklore is conceived of as being rural and about the past, are we missing an opportunity to comment on, for example, the ecosystems which we share our urban settings with? The rats, the weeds, the birds, all of these other beings that live around us, however precarious or challenged its existence might be. And also, what do you do for people who have no access to rural landscapes that they might relate to? If we concentrate on historic rural idylls, uh, do we make the stories too intangible to remove from some people's daily lives for the meaning to actually fully carry across? Fortunately, in the United States, folklore scholarship has actually, over recent decades, keenly engaged with the idea that folklore is an ongoing living process that simply describes the vernacular culture, including stories, of any given population. And so very valuable work has been done on new and ongoing urban or modern myths. So the alligators in the sewers, for example, or the vanishing hitchhiker or the Kentucky Fried Rat. So one of my first steps is to broaden my own understanding of that scholarship and then bring it to bear on my own storytelling practice to try out some urban storytelling. But that's not all I want to do. Given that we individually use stories, even unconsciously, even just to ourselves, to make sense of daily life, I'd like to engage eco-storytelling with the stories that we each as individuals make about our surrounding landscape now in our daily lives. And a lot of that is going to come from popular culture, what, what we are informed by um, from media and discussion around us. Uh, because within that, there are the inherited narratives and symbols such as what folklore is or isn't. For example, uh, the music that I've been using to soundtrack this recording, I chose to use that sort of music because it evokes, for me, a suitable atmosphere of mystery and earthiness and the past. But I was actually playing it on an instrument called the bazooki, which originally comes from Greece, but was heavily remodelled and revised by Irish musicians in the 1960s and 70s. So. It's actually very different from the traditional Greek bazooki. It's a very recent instrument. But for me at least, and I think for a lot of other people too, from our standpoint in history and culture, it evokes an atmosphere of the exotic and something rootsy and old. 
to go back to the point that I was making earlier about storytelling and identity, this also proves that the language of symbols, the language of imagery, isn't just a vocabulary or an alphabet. It's a dressing up box that we can dive into and find any combination of costumes that we like to explain our lives and our place in existence to ourselves and then perform that explanation to other people. But I digress. Storytelling has an even more everyday and an even deeper part in modern culture still. Because even if modern folklore, like I've said, doesn't really contain overt oral traditions passed down within a community anymore to express its relationship with the land and, and, and carry the, the lessons that, that keep a community going. It does still include stories that we tell to ourselves and then to our friends to reflect on what's happened in the day, or even family stories about what granddad said when he worked at the goods yard or why your parents moved house. And so these stories will shape our outlook and at times even our feelings about a place. And each of us, as we go through our lives, will acquire new stories as we make sense of events, many of which too will build up memories and impressions about the landscapes we move through. That was the spot where I had my first kiss. That was where Scott came off his skateboard and skinned his chin. That was where Edward was convinced that he'd seen a wolf. Kent C. Ryden defines this as the invisible landscape, the palimpsest that we carry with us of memories and anecdotes, bits of imagination that together combine to form a map of stories that we carry with us in any familiar space that helps us negotiate and navigate the emotional experience of space. And this emotional reservoir, this storehouse of stories and symbols, I am sure has a lot of untapped potential for storytelling work to engage people imaginatively with the landscapes that they might otherwise take for granted. Getting them to see those landscapes and the ecosystems therein as important, as distinct, as valuable, and ultimately as worth protecting. John, welcome to Technicast. Thank you very much. What a fascinating topic you have, and uh, full disclosure, it's right up my own alley. Um, so I could ask you so many questions about it, but um, I think I'll leave our listeners to digest it all for themselves. And uh, if they have questions, I'm sure they can get in touch with you. So I was wondering, because you're a professional storyteller, what does that entail? And considering what you said about folk tales, about myths, etc., what do you think your role is as a storyteller? My my role as a storyteller really is 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 very varied. People say, "Where do you do it?" and I find myself saying, "Wherever they'll have me." Really, so a lot of what I did was going into schools because there are stories that relate to lots of subjects that people might be doing when people do the Romans or the Vikings or whatever. But also, I've done stories from rainforest tribes from around the world when people are doing about 
rainforest ecology. I also uh, put on a lot of gigs of my own that would be in um, small theatres and venues like that. And there are lots and lots and lots of storytelling groups and regular club nights and things that um, you can you can still go to online. And, and there's all sorts of amazing people taking it in turns to tell stories and well worth looking into. Mm. So you, you, your other question was about uh, what, what's my my role exactly yeah so um if we think about community and all of that so do you think there's a role to play there for you as a storyteller yeah i think there is yes absolutely um i think my role primarily first and foremost about everything else is to entertain that's what it comes down to right down at the bottom if it's not fun and emotionally inspiring then then it's it's not working at all and it's really you know i have fun when i'm doing it and i want other people to have fun when they're listening but while i am doing that then i i do like the fact that the stories themselves for the most part what i tell are stories from oral tradition or from very old manuscript sources that have a sort of role to play in heritage, I suppose, for want of a, a better word. I know that's not very precise. And yeah, th that community connection is part of what interests me in them, definitely. And wherever I go, then I like to tell stories situated in that locality because I think it's, it's valuable for people to have that sense of connection with where they are and to realize that actually for me it might be just you know um, the road to the corner shop and back but actually it turned out that once somebody got you know, captured by a highwayman there and then they went off and got married or you know it was some sort of crazy romantic daft ex escapade uh, yeah gives it some drama so how do you choose the stories that you tell because then that becomes almost you know that selection means a lot um and if you say a lot of them come from oral tradition or are, are quite old stories then mm. when does a new story come in when does a new story enter the canon that's a, a a very interesting and entirely valid question absolutely the way i choose the stories i tell is i, I choose the ones that i find artistically satisfying really more than anything i mean i i, I like to find that local connection for example or if i've been asked to tell stories on a particular theme then i'll find something that connects with that but the stories that i will go for are the ones that i think are just great narratives that have a, a, a real sort of emotional meaning and impact beyond what can really be put into words, which is something that I, I'm, I'm now having to grapple with as part of the PhD when we are very much obliged to try and intellectualize and, and, and articulate things in a very precise manner. I mean, that's something I'm actually quite looking forward to wrestling with, actually, is, is discussing the, the blurry boundary of, of um, yeah, imagination and um, that's something I think a lot of us can uh, can relate to, the sort of element of fun that might be affected by intellectualizing and theorizing a bit too mm. much. So, uh, John, thank you very much. Lots of food for thought, I hope, also for our for our listeners. And perhaps we can all turn this, this lockdown, at least those of us who are still in lockdown in the UK, of an exploration of our local folklore. I hope if you do, then it's a, a satisfying and rewarding experience for you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. That's all for this episode of the TechnateCast. If you enjoyed it, please share, subscribe and rate us. If you'd like to submit your own podcast, please get in touch with us at technecaster at gmail.com.
You can find out more about our upcoming themes on our website and in Techne's newsletter. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks to John Mason for this episode and to Techne for their support. And thank you for listening. Join us again next month to discover another researcher's fascinating work.